So the last couple of weeks we've been talking about uh, uncliche and the cliche. And uh, basically what we've been meaning by that is, um, you know, there are a number of, a lot of different phrases that we kind of toss around in our Christian circles. And, uh, and they're really good phrases. They're very true. They're powerful phrases. But because we, you know, we, we use them so frequently, they kind of begin to lose their potency. You know what I mean? And, and so the impact of the truth the, of what uh, these sayings, what these cliches um, try to say, it gets lost on us. And so um, three, two weeks ago, I, I spoke about uh, God loves you, which, you know, we hear about that all the time. And, uh, you know, we say it to each other, we use it all the time, and we often don't even know what we're saying, or we don't even think about what we're saying, or what that actually means. And so then last week, we spoke about God is good. There's me. Okay, here we are. That was me. That is not a smile. I'm a guy who is known for his smiles, and that is not a smile. That was bitter anger. Okay, that's all. That's enough. That's enough of that. Okay, there we go. Um, anyway, so, uh, yeah, and then last week we spoke about um, God's goodness. And again, we always hear God is good all the time, and all the time, right on. Um, and again, what does that mean? And so, you know, these are, these are sayings that have a ton of uh, meaning to them. They're not just simple, you know, you can unpack them in one message. You could spend weeks and weeks talking about God's love for us, right? Uh, and you still wouldn't exhaust that, um, or, or God's goodness. And so instead of, like, trying to tackle the whole idea of what this is saying, we just kind of looked at kind of one angle or one, one or two perspectives on each of these things. And, and we, um, we, you know, tried to provide, I tried to provide, a, you know, a new look or, or a refreshed, a refreshing look at what these uh, sayings mean and, being, and help us to hopefully, um, you know, come away from them with, you know, a new perspective or, or just be encouraged at uh, what we're actually talking about when we say God loves you or God is good. And this morning we're going to talk about it's in God's hands or God is in control. Um, we were in Toronto this last week, actually. Uh, I was there for work and I had, a, I was in, in, and I brought Rhonda along as well, which is awesome. Um, and so when I was in meetings all day, she was in uh, her glory shopping and visiting friends and doing all sorts of Toronto things. And so she was on the subway, and she told me about this conversation she had with this, uh, this guy sitting next to her. Um, she was, she was uh, uh, reading a book, and it referenced God on the cover. And, and so this guy came, uh, you know, said something like, oh, I can't help but notice uh, the book you're reading there. Um, and, of course, those kind of conversations always start up spiritual conversations, right? And so she had this, you know, five or ten minute conversation with this guy. Um, and one of the first things he said to her as they began talking about spiritual things was, oh, this, is, this is just embarrassing. <laughs> okay, wow. Talk about ruining a moment, hey? Um, okay, well, I don't need that pen. I'm not going to bother picking it up. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, one of the first things this guy mentions to her is this Ethiopian woman that he works with. And she's been in Canada for a short time. She has two kids. Um, and so he starts talking to Rhonda about this woman that just has this incredible peace about her. And he says, like, I noticed it at first, and I was just like, like, this is weird. This woman comes from a very different culture. Uh, you know, she's in a new world, a new, you know, um, way of life. There's all sorts of uncertainties. You know, her job is uncertain. Um, 
her kids, where are they going to go to school? They don't have family, they don't have any friends. It's just like being plucked from Ethiopia and being put down in Toronto, Canada. And like, yet she had this incredible peace about her. And so, you know, they worked side by side or whatever. And he said he, he um, finally got the nerve and just said, like, how are you this way? Like, are you unaware of your situation? And, and this is a professing agnostic. He's not a believer in anything, obviously, at this point, well, at all. So he said, uh, or she said, it's okay. It's all in God's hands. And he, you know, at first when he heard that, he said he was really skeptical of that. He's really cynical. He's like, okay. But the more he worked with this woman, the longer that he, uh, you know, interacted with her. And every day he, he saw that there was this, this peace persisted. And it was just like, whatever circumstances came her way, it seemed like she just was cool with it. And um, so it got, to a point, like, it got to a point where he was just so, he actually said he became envious of it. And he tells Rhonda, this complete stranger on the subway, he says, can I tell you something? I've never experienced that kind of peace. I have never felt peace in my life. That's what he says to Rhonda, who he's never met before. And um, I don't know, when I hear those kind of stories about, about people's understanding of, you know, life being in God's hands or, or, you know, God being in control, I get encouraged. And I think about my own life and I think like, yeah, that is a sweet gift that we've, we've been given as Christians, right? And so um, when we try to decipher, you know, a saying like God's in control, well, that provides the potential to open up just massive, massive implications, all sorts of discussions we can have. We can talk about free will and predestination. And we can talk about all these, like, heady terms that will end up just giving us migraines. Like, actually, I read this uh, quote online. This is from a forum, and uh, a forum about God being in control, I guess. I can't remember where it was, but it said, this guy asked, he says, what does God is in control even mean? Does it mean that God controls every event from the roll of a dice to the rape of a woman? If that is the case, what about free will? If God doesn't control every event, how much does he control? Does he sit back and passively watch what happens? If God is in total control, then why is the world so evil? Is God in control only in the lives of believers? What then is the purpose of prayer, other than God tells us to pray? Wouldn't it mean God's will was always done? So why pray for his will to be done? Boom! Like, there's some good questions in there. Let's be honest, right? Um, but this morning, I don't want to look at that angle of God being in control. I think, you know, some of those more theologically-minded discussions deserve to take place in a limelight service. And so ask Chris the next time you see him about these questions. Um, but instead, I want to try to redeem this cliche this morning by kind of looking at how we can get to a place in our lives like, like this Ethiopian woman uh, that, that moved to Canada, you know, with her two kids. A place where um, there may be uncertainties in our lives. You know, there might be things that we don't know, and there are, obviously. Big questions about what's going to happen, you know, to our kids, our job. How are we going to pay for our rent or our mortgage or, or whatever? Um, and yet, through all those uncertainties, to show that uh, it's possible to have a peace like this woman that, that transcends our, our circumstances, that um, is able to convict a guy like this, an agnostic, to the point where he, the first thing he says to my wife in a, in, you know, a spiritual conversation is like, I've never experienced peace like what this woman has. 
You know, that's the kind of discussion I want to have this morning, to, to get around, or to get our heads around the idea that um, there is this attainable peace, there is this attainable um, understanding of our world, and everything in it, all the junk that's wrong with our world. Um, and this week, there was obviously lots that, that highlighted that statement, right? Um, so there's this peace that's possible. And so um, I want to I talk about it from that angle, if that's cool. Uh, and so I know maybe some of our more intellectually, theologically minded people might be like, ah, oh, shucks. But um, again, bring it up with Chris and Limelight. Don't talk about it with me, ever. <laughs> ever. Okay, so uh, now there's lots of Bible stories that speak about, um, you know, characters in the Bible who understand uh, you know, what that meant, what God's being in control or what their lives meaning God's hands meant. There's lots of stories. But last week we were in Genesis and we looked at the book of, or we looked at the story of Joseph. And so I, I, I want to stay there, just back it up a little bit, and look at the life of Abraham and Sarah. And so that's where we're going to focus this morning. Um, now, I chose them because their lives model very much uh, what I think our lives are like. There are moments where there's like profound understanding and trust that God is in control, that God does have their lives in their hands. There are moments like that in their lives. And then there are moments where that just doesn't work, and they feel they need to take things into their own hands. And so we're going to look at some of those things this morning um, and hopefully walk away with maybe some encouragement or, you know, whatever, a new way to look at things. Okay, so we're going to start in chapter 12, and I'm going to not play with this stand too much. Uh, let's begin at verse 1. The Lord had said to Abram, so his name is not Abraham yet. His name begins with Abram, and then uh, later on he'll, his name will be changed. Uh, he says, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went. As the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Lot's his cousin, I think. Right? Is that right? Yeah, okay. I didn't read up on it. I should. Uncle? Uh, thanks, Angela. She's such a Bible thumper. I love it. Good job, Angela. <laughs> um, right. Okay, first, let's just spend a few minutes understanding exactly what God is asking of this Abraham character. Uh, so he comes from the land of Ur. Of the Chaldeans. Now, Ur is in ancient Mesopotamia. When I was in grade eight, I did a project with a group that um, took all semesters. One of those amazing projects that sticks in your memory for years. It was really effective. And it was just like a term project, and each of us had to choose an ancient civilization, and I got Mesopotamia, and our group did. And so it was like on the board, there was this giant paper and all these pictures. In those days, it was just like crappy black and white dot matrix pictures that you would pit point, print out of. Uh, all the different, uh, you know, figures and things. They didn't have the internet yet either, so it was like photocopying out of an encyclopedia. Anyway, um, doesn't matter at all. But one of the things that actually stuck out uh, in that project that I still remember is learning about ziggurats. Does anyone know what a ziggurat is? Don't tell me. Dan does. Good. Uh, okay, so a ziggurat is kind of like a pyramid, uh, except it had steps. And, and essentially it was, uh, if I remember correctly, it was basically built as kind of, uh, a way to access the gods. These people would climb up these like hundreds and hundreds of steps up the ziggurat, and then they would uh, 
sacrifice their animals to like the god of rain or the god of fertility or the god of crops or whatever gods they needed to sacrifice to. <laughs> That's the world that Abraham actually comes out of. So Abraham or Abraham lives, he, he, and he, this is the world that he has always known. He had served all these different gods. Now, these gods were not personal gods. They didn't interact with you. They were basically um, more like forces that you could control through your sacrifice, theoretically. And so that's the worldview that we see Abraham in when God, this divine voice, comes out of the blue and calls him out of Ur, tells him to leave that place, take his wife, and makes his promise to him. Um, and so Sarah, he takes Sarah, his wife, and they go. Now, um, Angela, my Bible says that it was his nephew. Oh, oh, I see. Well, really? I don't know. Uh, I don't know. Okay. Anyway, uh, all right, we'll give that to you. So the stage is set. Uh, oh, sorry, verse 7. I don't know if I read this part yet. Maybe I did. The Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your offspring I will give this land. Oh, cause, oh sorry. Did I read verse 5 yet? Yes. No. He took his wife Sarah, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated, and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abraham traveled throughout the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. So now the stage is set. Um, the relationship between God and Abraham is established. I'm sure that you know, God, Abraham has not figured out everything there is to figure out about God at this point, but that's okay. He's trusting God, right? And he takes, he leaves this world that he's known, listens to this voice calling to him, and he goes out and follows God, which in itself is amazing. Um, and so uh, then we have a famine in the land, and this brings Abraham to take his family to Egypt. And this is where things get kind of interesting. So as he was about to, I'm going to start in verse 11, chapter 12. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but will let you live. So say you are my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. When Abraham came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that Sarai was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. Excuse me. He treated Abraham well for her sake, and Abraham acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants, and camels. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abraham's, Abraham's wife, Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abraham. What have you done to me? He said. Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her to be my wife? Which is another way of saying I laid with her. Which is another way of saying I had sex with her. Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abraham to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. So, Abraham follows God's voice into the desert, into this new land that he's being called to. Uh, you know, this profound trust, this profound understanding. Like, okay, 
I don't know this voice, but I'm willing to get behind it. This is awesome. God, you're going to do something amazing in my life. This is good. He sees evidence of God all around him. He builds an altar as kind of a, we'll talk about that later, but he builds an altar as a way to remind himself of what's going on. And then there's a famine that comes into the land, and so he decides to take him to Egypt, take his family and all of his belongings to Egypt. Well, this is where we see a lapse in his judgment, you could say, or just a lack of his understanding or his faith that God does, in fact, have everything in control. Um, so, his, you know, he lies to Pharaoh is what he does, right? And uh, obviously, God didn't want him to lie. That's a decep- Deception is never um, a good thing. Um, and so this is, you know, this is a bad thing. And it, it stems from the fact that he didn't trust that God had everything in control, right? So, what happens as a result of that? Well, his wife sleeps with the king of Egypt. But then here's what's interesting, right? In this situation, in any, you know, ancient East, Middle East uh, context, if this had happened, if a foreigner had lied to a king, do you think the king would just say, oh, go? No, he would not even think twice about just killing the guy. And yet he turns to Abraham and he says, take your wife and all the belongings that you've attained while you were on my land and leave. I have to think that Abraham was just kind of bewildered in that moment. Like, you just caught me red-handed lying to you, and you're telling me to leave, and you're not going to cut my head off. That's, that's amazing. I, I kind of just picture him, like, leaving the palace, you know, chuckling to himself and just kind of, like, realizing, wow, God was in control all along right? Like, how many of us can relate to that experience where we have, you know, something's before us and we decide we need to take uh, control of that moment, and so instead of doing what is maybe right, um, we decide to take control, do things our own way, and in the end, it kind of, like, comes around to the fact that we just have to laugh and, and realize that God's been in control all along, that our lives have been in his hands all along, and if we had just trusted him from the beginning, we could have saved a lot of hardship, right? This is something that we all experience as humans, I think, often. We, when we moved back from um, uh, the Bahamas in 2009, my wife and I, it was January, it was miserable, and uh, we needed jobs, and my wife was four months pregnant, and uh, the goal was we needed her to get a job so she could go on mat leave and be able to stay home for a year with Cam. That's what all Canadians do, Right? Right. And so um, she's four months pregnant. And when someone is four months pregnant, nobody is going to ask if you're pregnant. Right? Like you're starting to show, but it's just like, well, it might be, but they might not, but I'm not going to ask. Nobody's going to do that. And so we decide, okay, if you're going to apply for a job, don't tell that you're pregnant. She doesn't have to. She's not obligated to. Right? And an employer is not allowed to ask either. And it would be really risky if they did ask, especially if she wasn't pregnant, but she was. Um, so, they, so, she, so we said, we're not going to ask, we're not, or we're not going to tell the employer. So she applied for a few jobs, and she didn't get those jobs. And then she felt guilty, and was like, ugh, I feel like I should be honest and just tell people straight up. And so then she went into another job interview, and um, she, she said, listen, I'm four months pregnant, and there's a really good chance I'm not going to come back to this job uh, after my baby's, or after my maternity leave's done. And they're like, okay. They hired her because they had to. But they hired her, and um, the job was miserable. 
but that's okay. She got her 600 hours in, and uh, then she went on mat leave. And then here's what happened. Like two months before her mat leave ended, the company went out of business, which was awesome for Rhonda's sake because they gave a two-month payout as well. And because the company went out of business, it legitimately allowed her to go on EI, which legitimately allowed her to get the self-employment benefit, which gave her another 42 weeks of EI payments, which is awesome. So she could start her own business. And now here we are three years later, and she's got like a thriving catering business that allows her to spend time at home with the kids and make some money on the side. It's like the whole thing worked out perfectly because in the end, we actually just said, okay, let's, let's be honest from the outset. But at the beginning, when we were like, let's, you know, let's not say anything about what's happening in our lives with your belly. Let's just pretend that you're planning on working in this job forever. Uh, so that kind of, you know, deception, you can call it that, and I'm not saying you have to follow that. That's, um, I think that's a gray area. But uh, for us, it was a black and white thing. And we'd say, you know, we need to be honest about this. And I'll be honest. She said we need to be honest. I was telling her, no, I think you should, I think you should do this. But, okay, anyway, um, different story. But, again, just this idea that these kind of situations happen to all of us, right? And I think it's key. When there is clarity and there is, uh, you know, conviction on your heart or there's something that's clear through Scripture that tells you you need to, do, you need to live or decide, make these decisions a certain way, then I think when we go against that, that doesn't mean that, you know, God can't change or God can't redeem that situation, but just means that we are saving ourselves a lot of grief if we choose to follow, um, you know, what God's actually clearly laid out for us to do. Okay, let's get back to Abraham and Sarah. Uh, So chapter 15, verse 5, he took him outside, this is God, took Abraham outside And he said, look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abraham believed the Lord, and he credited to him his righteousness. Now Sarai, Abraham's wife, so this is obviously, I'm sorry, I didn't really provide any context. We're skipping a little bit here, a couple of chapters. Chapter 16, verse 1 says, Abraham's wife had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian servant named Hagar. So she said to Abraham, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go, sleep with my servant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abraham agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abraham had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai and his, his wife took her Egyptian servant Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abraham, You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. <clears throat> I can see you're like just angry. I put my servant in your arms and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your servant is in your hands, Abraham told her, or Abraham said. Do with her whatever you think best. So then Sarai mistreated Hagar, and so she fled from her. Later on in the story, we'll see that Hagar comes back, um, but we're not going to cover that this morning. But uh, essentially, the Lord takes Abraham outside and tells him to look at the sky, and he counts, you know, count the stars, and he says, that's how many offspring you're going to have. That's, you know, the start of this covenant, this promise that I'm going to make through you. Um, and, and what's interesting at this point is that Abraham believes that, and it says that it's credited to him as righteousness. But then the very next chapter, we see this situation or, or this compromise that Abraham, you know, his wife is like, okay, I'm not having any children. I'm getting really old. Clearly, we misunderstood what God was asking us to do here. Clearly, he wants us to, he want, you know, the seed's going to come through you, Abraham, so why don't you just sleep with your servant 
Hagar here and, and will kind of help God along in making this covenant come to pass, right? It's so noble of her, right? It, you know, she, you look at this story and you're like, wow, that's some great trust you had there, Sarah. Um, but put yourself in those shoes. I mean, you're an older lady. You're way past the prime of being able to bear children. It doesn't make sense. It's just not adding up. So you take things into your own hands. You get, set, you get Hagar to come along, and, of course, she has a baby. She has a baby named Ishmael. Um, but that wasn't God's intention. That wasn't part of God's plan. He didn't want that to happen, and because of that, there's all sorts of grief that comes from Ishmael. For instance, Hagar gets sent away. She gets shunned by, you know, her masters. And uh, fortunately, she, sees, she uh, interacts with God in the, in the desert, and God tells her to go back. And, you know, there's some redemption going on there as well, but it's still, like, the whole thing could have been avoided if they trusted that their lives were in God's hands and that this covenant that he had promised was going to come to pass. Well, Let's fast forward a bit more. Now, God has laid out the specifics of his covenant with Abraham, telling them that what he has planned with him, and in the process changes his name to Abraham and Sarah, his wife to Sarah, which is great for me because now I don't have to get confused about what I call them. Isaac is born to Sarah at 90 years old. Uh, Isaac is a young boy. His parents now at a time in their lives, which everything kind of makes sense, okay? So, you know, for years and years and years, God had promised this covenant, and then for, you know, all this time, they're like, I don't see this happening, God. You're promising all these offspring that our name will be, you know, that many nations will be blessed through me, that, uh, you know, the offspring will be as plentiful as the stars in the sky, but this isn't happening. And yet now, Isaac's born, and it's like this giant sigh of relief. It's like, oh, this is what you had in mind, God. Cool. I'm good. And so you can kind of picture them just kind of resting. They're, you know, later stages in life. Um, and they're just relaxing and, and understanding that, yeah, this is God's will for us. And then, this is what happens. Chapter 22. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said, Abraham, here I am, Abraham replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son whom you love. So apparently, God didn't consider Ishmael part of, this, part of his being a son either. And God says, take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain, I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he sent out for the place God had told him about. Verse 6, Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. So they're up at the top of the mountain. They're ready to do this thing. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. When they reached the place God had told him about, verse 9, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then he reached out his hand and took his knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything with him, to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Again, he reiterates that this is his only son. Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of a son. So Abraham called that place the Lord will provide, and to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, third time, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. 
Your descendants will take possessions of the, possession of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. So, that's not odd at all, is it, that request? No. Um, yeah, I mean, it's bizarre, right? Like, he'd followed God his whole life, and finally everything was figured out. And yet, despite this absurd request, despite uh, the fact that killing his only son would basically put him and Sarah back at square one in terms of this covenant being fulfilled, this, despite the fact that this in itself was a miraculous child, I mean, Sarah was so old when she had him, um, despite that, you know, all these different things that were taking place, it seems that Abraham, at this point in his life, is able to completely trust that things are going to work out. He doesn't even question God this time. He has complete confidence that his life and everything he knows is in God's hands, that God's in control. And so he brings Isaac to be sacrificed and fully intends to do so. God says, I need you to sacrifice him on this mountain. So the very next morning, Abraham gets up, brings his son, and they start hiking up this mountain for three days. The Bible doesn't say that he questioned God on this or that he decided to take things into his own hands and just sacri- you know, bring a lamb just in case. He fully intended to sacrifice his son. Now, a couple of things from this story then of Abraham and Sarah. First, how was Abraham able to get to this point? How does he get to you know, deception in Egypt, to sleeping with Hagar, to unabashed, complete trust at God's request to sacrifice his son. How does he get from Egypt to laying his son on an altar? And I think there are a few reasons. And so I want to kind of close with these last three reasons. First of all, I think it has a lot to do with his prior experience. Both the times in which he was able to see God's hand in things and in those experiences where he felt he had to take action only to find later on that God was, in fact, in charge all along. Those kind of experiences helped shape Abraham. Uh, Like, for instance, at the beginning, when he's called out of Ur, out of the world that he had known, and he trusts that this voice calling him is legit, and he follows it. Uh, But then there were moments along his journey when that confidence in God's control of the situation was a little bit wavering, right? where, you know, he didn't quite believe that God was in control after all, and he felt he had to take action and do something. And so he lies to Pharaoh. He sleeps with Hagar. And in chapter 20, he actually lies again about uh, his wife. But all in, in all those situations, um, regardless of his commitment, he was able to see God's hand in it looking back. And I think the first way that God was able, or that Abraham was able to get from this deception in Egypt to this, you know, sacrifice in Isaac on an altar was because he recollected his entire experience with God and realized that God had been faithful to him all along. But then I also think he had a special relationship with God, didn't he? Um, and this relationship would have been developed over years and years. When he first encounters uh, God's voice out of the, out of, uh, the blue, it breaks into his world and he introduces himself to Abraham. And Abraham is willing to obey from the outset. And as he goes along in life, he nurtures this relationship that's developed. 
Every situation along Abraham's life shows his life is in God's hand. That is an opportunity for Abraham to draw closer to his God, to grow a little bit more in his trust of God, to, to grow a little bit more in his faith and in his understanding of God. In fact, James chapter 2.23 says, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. Do you know that I don't think, and I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure that no one else in Scripture is called God's friend. So clearly Abraham had a special relationship with God that was developed, again, through his life experience. And so when God says, let's sacrifice your son, because there is that depth of relationship and that depth of understanding what God was like, he doesn't question it. I've been fortunate in my life to have a couple of really close friends over the years as well. Guys who I've known my entire life and to this day are still some of my closest friends. And, um, you know, we've been through, we've experienced life together, the good stuff and the bad stuff. And there's been lots of both. And, uh, and yet there is this, you know, trust and this understanding that we have developed over 25 years of friendship that, uh, you know, if, he, if one of my buddies was to say to me, Stephen, I need you to do this, I wouldn't think twice about it. And, and vice versa is true as well. Um, for instance, we were in Bible college a long time ago, and uh, my buddy wanted to get an ear pierced. And he says, Stephen, I didn't want to get an ear pierced, and I want you to get one with me because I need the moral support. <laughs> and of course... I, well, I didn't want to get an ear. I mean, I did want to get an ear pierced, but I didn't, right? I didn't, not because they're not cool, because everyone knows that piercing your body is the coolest thing you can do, right? No, not at all. But uh, I was terrified of the pointy, the, the gun with the little pointer in it that pierces your ear. The thing, free, it still terrifies me to this day. And so I was actually scared that I was going to pass out when that happened, but I didn't. I didn't pass out, uh, but I did get the earring, and actually it was up here, or I can't remember where it was. The whole has since come in. Um, and then three months later, uh, the ear had become really infected. And I was in a ton of pain. And um, I was sitting on my bed, and I was listening to The Summer of 69 by Brian Adams. You know it. And, uh, and then this, uh, this pain was throbbing. And then all of a sudden, I passed out. And then I woke up. And then a minute later, I passed it. I did it three times. I passed out three times. And my, my roommate at the time said, we need to get you to the hospital. This is weird. You shouldn't be doing this as much. So we went to the emergency, and the doctor confirmed that, um, I think he called it a very low pain tolerance. <laughs> yeah. He, he actually said it was lower than uh, most, most girls. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and so the earring came out. And it stayed out forever. And I still get ridiculed for it today. Um, but my point of that story is, is that <laughs> I was willing to do what my friend had asked because there was this relationship of trust that had been developed over years and years and years. And so when he comes to me and says, I need, I need you to help me, uh, you know, I need the moral support to get this earring, I'll be like, okay, I can do that for you. And... Um, However, if one of my buddies came up to me and said, Steve, I need you to sacrifice Cameron on an altar, I would probably hesitate a little bit more. <laughs> but that's okay because I wouldn't actually expect my friend to do that because I know my friends, right? We know those closest to us intimately. We know them well, and so we know what to expect. 
And if they're going to ask a question like that out of the blue, we know that's not them. And so, if this is God, then clearly that says something about Abraham's relationship with God. That it was so deep and so uh, understood mutually that Abraham gets to a point where he doesn't even question God's call. He's like, God, I'm not going to put this, take this into my own hands. I'm just going to believe you now. I'm at a point in my life, I've had all these experiences that I've, I've developed, and I'm just going to trust that it's, that it's all good. And so he does. Um, and I have a thing here. <laughs> friends don't mislead friends. Because God, if God is going to say something like that to Abraham, if he's going to make that request on Abraham, there's clearly a purpose in this, and he's not going to be misled, right? Because they're friends. God and Abraham are friends, and friends don't mislead friends. Okay, and one last thing. We are closing up. I see the numbers are coming down. Um, And finally, so Abraham could trust that God was in control all along because he made an effort to remember God's faithfulness to him. And we didn't read much of it this morning, but if you go through the story of Abraham, you'll see that after like every major event that happens in his life, every time that God speaks to him or every time that God does something really awesome, what does Abraham do? He builds an altar. And then when he comes back to that altar years later, whenever he comes back, he's always reminded of that time that God spoke to him or God did this amazing thing. And so recollection, I think, is an important part of understanding God's in control. Being able to look back on our lives and seeing and see that God's hand has been in it all from from the beginning. Um, I, I mentioned a book a couple weeks ago, Bo, uh, Love Does by Bob Goff. And in this book, he talks about a project that he does. And it's, the project is simple. He tries to record his life. Everything, everything in his life, he tries to record. Uh, to get a recollection of everything that has happened from, you know, his first bee sting to his first speeding ticket to whatever, it's, it's all written down. And he says, the reason I do this is so that when I'm old and my memory fades me, I can look back on these papers and see God's faithfulness and God's hand in my life all along. Rhonda's mom does something similar. She uh, has been keeping a journal of everything in her life for the last like 35 years. And there are literally hundreds of notebooks, thick page after page filled with um, this woman's life and, you know, the impact of her kids and all the different things, her grandkids now, all that stuff. And the reason she does it is, again, to see God's faithfulness to her throughout her life. It allows her to be more and more convinced. It allows, you know, uh, Bob to be more and more convinced that God's in control in the end, that God's hand is, in fact, guiding your life. And when you look back on your life and you see that, you know, it's possible, you know, it's, it's something you can be encouraged by as well. And so um, I want to close there. I want to, um, yeah, I, I think that Abraham and Sarah's story you know, the ups and downs of trusting that God's in control and wavering in that trust, I think that should be an encouragement to us this morning because they're human, and yet in the end, um, some pretty amazing things happen through Abraham's life, right? And so, um, yeah, it was, yeah, I guess that was my point. We can look at Abraham's life, we can look at Sarah's life and be encouraged by that and recognize that, you know, uh, maybe we don't understand everything that's happening in our midst right now, but trust that maybe, you know, five, ten years down the road or whatever, we can look back and see God's hand in our lives. 
And I know that doesn't address issues like predestination and free will and whether God's in control or, you know, controls every little thing. That's another conversation for another time. But I want us to be encouraged this morning that, um, you know, God's in control is, is a saying that we can trust. That our lives being in God's hands is something that we can, we can hold to and we can believe in. And, and same with, you know, God is good and God, is, God loves you. I don't want us to be discouraged by using these things, these, these sayings. I want us to be encouraged to use them often, but I want us to, to think about what we're saying when we say them. And to talk, you know, if someone says to you, hey, God loves you, or, or yeah, God is good, to take just 10 seconds and dwell on that, because that is good for the soul. And that draws us closer to Jesus. And I think one of the greatest things about being in in relationship with Jesus and getting back to this woman from Ethiopia that that moved to Canada is being able to take hold of the peace that he offers us, right? Being able to to know that in the thick of the crap that happens in our lives, the stuff that happens in our world, there is an understanding that in the end, God's got it in his hands. And, uh, And I hope that cliche-ness of it. it was stripped just a little bit more this morning. So I'm going to call the musicians up and um, Joel, and I'm just going to close in prayer. So let's go. Father, uh, we give you thanks this morning for this time that we have together to be able to share some laughs and, and look at your word, to look at what it means when we talk about you being in control. Help us to, um, to think about these things, Lord. All the different you know, common phrases that we've looked at the last few weeks. Help us to um, see them through fresh eyes and fresh ears and fresh understanding and to be encouraged by them, Lord. And I ask that you would um, just work through each of us this week even as we go from this place and as we um, um, interact with the world around us, Lord, that they would be able to see a peace in us similar to this guy in the subway who was able to Just not shake it, Father, from his mind. Help us live that kind of testimony, that kind of witness to those around us and help it to stem from just a deep and profound understanding of your love for us and your goodness and, Father, even your control in our lives. And I ask these things in your Son's name. Amen.